our God is holy. Amen? Amen. Let's look in our copy of God's Word this morning to uh, the book of 1 John, chapter 4. We are going to be looking in the letter of 1 John, chapter 4, this, this morning, and I'm uh, going to be looking at some of the principles that he gives us, as we said, in our Advent time. This is uh, the Sunday that is all about uh, expressing love, and so we want to talk about that love this morning. And so I've got few, quite a few things arranged up here, so I'm having a little trouble uh, figuring it out, but we'll get there. Let's go ahead, and uh, I, I know you just stood up, and so I'm going to ask you to remain seated, but let's go ahead and read this passage together from the board. 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7 through verse 11. Let's read together. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Back in 1963, the, uh, the song was released on an album. It wasn't, the, it wasn't the, the main hit. It wasn't even the single from that album, but it was by Andy Williams. And the song was, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. And I'm sure all of you know that song, but believe it or not, it really was not that popular when it first came out. In fact, when it was released in 1963, it never peaked above 21 on the top 100 billboard list. Never got that far. And so for years, it was kind of ignored, but here in the last couple of decades, it's kind of made a comeback, hasn't it? Because uh, we hear this everywhere, don't we? It's the most wonderful time of the year ever since 2007, which is hard to believe, but that's been nearly 20 years ago now. You're welcome for that. But ever since 2007, this song has hit the number, has been within five, uh, the top five of the 100 billboard chart every holiday. Literally, wherever you go, you tend to hear this song. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Now, I don't know that everybody would necessarily agree that Christmas is the most wonderful time of the year, but I think we could probably all agree that it's probably considered to be the most romantic time of the year. In fact, I think uh, Christmas has kind of surpassed Valentine's Day. I think it's kind of surpassed even anniversaries. I know I proposed to my wife on Christmas, and I dare say that probably many of you probably might have done that as well. You proposed to your wife on, during the Christmas season or something like that. And so I think that we can all agree that Christmas has really kind of become the most romantic time of the year. And I don't know about you, but I kind of blame Hallmark movies for that. that that's my theory. So anyway, um, and I know we have a couple of fans. I see you kind of, yeah, all right. So, but anyway, you know, I think a lot of that has to do with the culture's definition of love and how the culture tends to 
talk about love and, and what they view of, as love. For instance, you'll hear people say that love is a feeling or love is all about sharing or caring. Or this is one that we hear all the time today, that love is all about being with whoever makes you happy. That is how our culture does tend to define love. And, and what's interesting is that our culture practically worships the idea of love. Everything you hear, laws are being set in motion today that's all about being, you know, you should be able to love who you love. And, we, and, and the culture worships love. And what's so ironic about that is that many of the ways that the culture defines love are things that are diametrically opposed to how the scriptures talk about what love is. And so God has called the church in this passage and others, Christ has called the church to be the model of what true love is, that the world can look into the church and see what genuine love really looks like. And unfortunately, many churches today fall short in that. And so what I wanna do is I want to encourage us this morning to, to love one another as, as Christ defines it, as John commands it, and that that love for one another within this building will, will spill out into the community, into our families and our workplaces, so on and so forth. That's why the church needs to understand this. Hopefully it, we will model this love for our community. Church is a place where you come and learn how to love as Christ loved the church. At least it's supposed to be. And beloved, what I wanna do is I want to encourage us to become that model. I, I wanna encourage us. And, and by the way, let me just say on the outset, we are doing very well in that. We're doing very well. But there's always room for improvement. There's always what Paul says, to excel still more. And that's what we want to do this morning. This is what John has called us to do. Look what he says in verse seven. He says, beloved, let us love one another. You need to understand about that phrase, let us love one another, is that that is not, even though it kind of comes across this way, it's not really a suggestion, but it's actually a command. It is an imperative verb. And what John is doing is that he is commanding his readers, but he is including himself in the command. And so he's saying essentially that we must love one another. That's the way to understand that phrase, that we must love one another. This is not an option. This is an imperative. This is a command that John is including himself in. And beloved, let me tell you, and I've said this before, but I haven't said it in a while. So, so let me just remind you that there are a lot of things about a church that people will forgive. If we don't have the best youth ministry in town, you know what? People will forgive that. They'll look, they're willing to look over that. If we don't have the best and most exciting music in town, guess what? People will look over that and people will be okay with that. People will forgive a lot of shortcomings in the church, but the one thing people will not look over is a lack of love. And if you walk into a church and it is filled with, with division, filled with fighting, filled with selfishness, filled with, with all of this other stuff, it's dying. It's dying. And no one 
will want to walk. I mean, do you want to walk into a place like that every Sunday? No. Who does? The one thing that people will not forgive a church, and rightfully so, is a lack of love. And so, beloved, this morning, I want to encourage us once again. By the way, this is the secret to our, it's the backbone of everything we do. It's the secret to our evangelism. It, it amazes me how, in all the church growth seminars that I attend, uh, verses that actually talk about church growth in the scripture never come up. And this is one of them. In John chapter 13, verse 35, it says that by this, all people will know, there's the evangelism, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? Because you got the best music in town. No. Because you got fog machines. No. Because you got lighting patterns that are cool. No. Because you got the best programs. No. They will know you are my disciples. How? Because you love one another because you love one another. It's amazing how that verse never comes up in church growth seminars. And yet that is the secret to our evangelism. People see something here that they cannot get in the community and they start to ask questions. So beloved, this morning, John commands us to love one another. He commands us to love one another. And how do we do that? He, he tells us that we are to do it, but the question is, how do we do it? And he's gonna give us three descriptions on how to love one another this morning. Three descriptions. And here's what they are. Number one, we're gonna see the root of that love. We're gonna see the demonstration of that love. And we're gonna see the direction of that love. The root, the demonstration, and the direction. So let's look at it this morning, beginning in verse Number seven, moving into verse eight. Love, beloved, is rooted in our new nature. Love is rooted in our new nature. Look what he says. He says, let us love one another. Why? For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, I don't know about you, but every time I read that verse, the, the rhythm of that old song pops in my head, you know. Beloved, let us love one another. Am I the only one? Okay, so I took a shot. But um, so anyway, let us love one another. Th these verses seven and eight are kind of structured like, like a Hebrew wisdom. We see this in the Proverbs where you have a contrast in order to make a point. The truth is stated, but then the negative is stated in order to reinforce that truth. And so John first says, let us love one another. Why? Because love is from God. And what does he say here? Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And then he reinforces that by stating the opposite in verse eight. That anyone who does not love God or anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. This is the doctrine of regeneration, the doctrine of God giving us new life, okay? And it's expressed in different ways. Paul talks about the old self versus the new self. Uh, uh, we are a new creation in Christ. But John's favorite expression for, for discussing that doctrine is the idea of being born again, and you remember that from John chapter three, don't you? Whenever Jesus is talking to the Pharisee, Nicodemus, 
And he says that if you want to see the kingdom of God, if you want to live in the kingdom of God, you must be born again. That is John's favorite expression for talking about the new life. And we see uh, hints of that here. In fact, I can't help but to wonder if maybe John is, is causing his readers to, to think back on, that, on what Jesus said at that point. That if we are, that, that we are to be born of God, anyone who loves is the one who has been born of God. We have that regeneration and salvation. We are a new creation. We are of a new nature. And loving one another is the expression of that new life that we have in Christ. The new life that we have in Christ works itself out in loving others and loving one another. So much so that Paul, that John, Paul, that John reinforces it by stating the opposite in verse eight, that anyone who does not love does not know God. If you are characterized, if your life is characterized by a lack of love, a, 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 you're not growing in that love, your life is characterized by an unloving, selfish attitude then beloved, according to John here, there's no reason to believe that you have that new life within you. That one of the symptoms of, of being a false professor is that your life is not characterized by the love of God. Your life is not characterized by Christ. Look what John says down in verse 20 of chapter four. He says, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is what? He is a liar. You don't love God. You're lying straight through your teeth. Someone may say they're a Christian, but if their life is not characterized by a growing sense of God's love in their lives, the fruit tells the real story. The fruit tells the real deal. In fact, look at Galatians chapter five and we're gonna hit this a couple of times, so you might wanna, might wanna put your ribbon there, or your marker, or your thumb, whatever you don't mind losing. Galatians chapter five, and you know this passage, chapter five, verse 20, 21 and 22, excuse me, 22 and 23. This is the fruit of the Spirit, right? And you remember, Paul is contrasting what are the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. And he says in verse 22, he says, but the fruit of the Spirit, number one, what is first on the list. He says, the fruit of the Spirit is love. That's saying the same thing that John is saying here, that love is from God. That love is a work of the Spirit that shows its fruit in our lives that when we are made a new creation in Christ, one of the expressions of that new creation is that the Spirit gives us the love of Christ and that love works its way out to the brothers and sisters in our covenant family, most and foremost. It's a fruit in which God works in us, but it is also something we must cultivate, hence the command, hence the command. Some of you guys are gardeners. And you know all about how gardening works, uh, nursery works, that there is nothing you can do, there's nothing in your power to make a seed turn into a fruit. You know that, right? 
It does that on its own. That's just, that's just the natural processes, right? But here's what you can do. You can cultivate it. You can water it. You can feed it with plant food or whatever that stuff is. You can, you can give it sunlight. You can place it in the right places where it gets the best sun, the best sun. There's only one that I know of, but the, the best spot where it can feel the sun, right? And, you can, and when it starts to come up and there's unhealthy parts of the plant, you can prune it and you cultivate it to where if you do that, you take that, it becomes this beautiful fruit that is tasty to all of those who partake in it. And beloved, the fruit of the Spirit works the same way. That it is a work of God within us, but it is also something that we cultivate. We water it. We feed it. We, when we see unhealthy things being expressed, we prune it. And we do all of that so that our lives become a living, breathing, walking, talking fruit of God that others may look at and say, what a wonderful work of God in our lives. That we're pleasing to those who know Christ. And some of the works of the deeds of the flesh reveal themselves. We work on pruning them. And just before long, your life is characterized by the love of God flowing through your life. Isn't that what we all want? Love is from God. And the one who loves has been born of God. And they know God. So John tells us we are to love one another, but what does that look like? And he's gonna follow this up with two statements that begin with the phrase, by this, by this. This is what we are to know about this love. And it's ultimately demonstrated in God's love for us. And so the first thing he's gonna say is that love is demonstrated by sacrifice. Love is demonstrated by sacrifice. Look what he says in verse nine. Let me get back there. Look what he says in verse nine. He says, in this or by this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So John is saying, look, in this is love, to that effect, two times he says, this is what godly love looks like. And the very first thing he says, the first one is that God demonstrates his own love for us in this and that he sent his son into the world, his only son. The term there only is, is really interesting. And if you have uh, the more classic translation, maybe you have King James or New King James. I think the NASB kept this. Uh, I know the Legacy Standard Bible does. It uses that term begotten, the only begotten son. And you notice I translate it, th it that way because I actually like that term begotten. I like that term begotten. Here's why. Because it actually harkens back to Psalm chapter two. And I, and I want you to turn there for a second because I want you to see this. It is on the board, but I do want you to see this. Psalm chapter two. It says, I will surely tell, this is, the, uh, this is a, a psalm of kingship. This is a Davidic psalm. And it says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. And what is that decree? What does he say? He said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And that phrase begotten, it, it harkens back to that psalm. 
Because what is happening here in the psalm is that the new king, the son who is to become king, he is ascending to the throne and the Lord Yahweh tells him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, now think about this for a moment. How does a son become king? How does a son become king? We just saw this, didn't we? Prince Charles just became King Charles, right? How did that happen? Because what? Because, because he was the son of the queen in this case. How does a son become king? Because his daddy's the king. And what's happening here is that when Yahweh says to this king, you are my son, today I have begotten you, I want you to notice that there is, there is a sharing of the nature. Prince Charles became King Charles, why? Because he shares the DNA of his mother. Because he is of her, he, because she begot him. That he shares the same status as her, as being a member of the royal family. He has the same nature as her. He has the same history as her, the same family line as her. And so there is diversity in that the queen and Charles are not the same person, right? But they do share the same nature being in the royal line. And what we see here in this verse is we see that Yahweh is telling his king, the son, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. There is unity, but there is also diversity. The son is not the father, but they share of the same nature. They share the same essence. They share the same history. They are both eternal. They are both that share the nature of God. But they're different. The father is not the son, and the son is not the father. And so that's the picture here. Think about the, think about the context that John is writing in. And all of these pagan gods and all of these Roman gods who demanded a sacrifice, and they would just take any old sacrifice, right? They would take whatever. Any one of the God's children could be sacrificed, and he'll take any one of them. But God demonstrates his own love in this, that he sent his only son, the only one who shared his nature, the only son who was God himself. God sent that son, the only begotten son, to come to the earth so that we might live through him. That's why I like that term begotten. That's why I like the classic translation there. God both demanded a sacrifice for sin, but he also became the sacrifice for sin. You see, and we were talking about this in our Sunday school. We're going through Leviticus in our Sunday school class. And we talked about how God, in order for us to approach God, God's holiness must be satisfied. And the only way you can satisfy God's holiness is to be as holy as God is. And so the way we become holy must be holy. And I haven't said this yet, so Sunday school, close your ears for a moment. But beloved, here's the thing. You will either have a holy substitute to satisfy God's holiness, 
to satisfy, you must either have a substitute for sacrifice or you will become the sacrifice. You will become the target of God's holiness. And that's what we see in Nadab and Abihu whenever they offer strange fire to God. They don't offer an authorized sacrifice. The way we become holy must be holy. And so what did this accomplish for us? Look what he says. So that, why, what does this accomplish? So that we might live through him. This harkens back to verse seven and eight. How do we love? Because love is from God. And anyone who loves has been born of God and they know God. How do we know that? Because God sent his only begotten son to the world so that we might live through him. The way we become this loving person, it connects us back to this. What's the connection here? Is that we live through Christ. The very love that he commands us to show, he gives us through his own life and living in us and through us. And what does that do for us? Beloved, what has that got to do with sacrifice? What has that got to do with anything? Because when we cultivate a love for Christ, we are cultivating a love for God. Then all of my needs, everything that I need for life and godliness in this world is met in Christ. And you know what that means? That means that I'm free to love you in a truly biblical way, selfless. Because everything I need is coming from my relationship with Christ. You see, if I've got an idol in my life, something that I love more than Christ, if I've got something that I am serving more than God, there's only two ways I can relate to you. You're either someone who helps me get what I want, so I'm gonna love you, or you're someone who stands in the way of what I want and I'm going to attack you or hate you or try to get rid of you. But you see, when Christ becomes our all in all, when Christ fills our all in all, when our life becomes found in Christ, all of our needs are being met by Christ, which means it doesn't matter what you do to me because everything I need is coming from Christ and I am free to love you in a truly selfless, godly way. It doesn't matter what you give me or don't give me anymore. All that matters is that I want to glorify Christ by showing you love. One of the expressions of living through Christ is that we love like Christ, and that is shown through sacrifice. This is something that Jesus pointed out to the disciples during the last evening prior to his crucifixion. He says that greater love, John 15 and verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And the ultimate demonstration we see that is in Christ himself. He is the one that enables us to, sac to sacrificial love for one another. Have you ever noticed that all the world's love revolves around who? Me. You make me happy. 
You, uh, I, you remember the line for what, what, what movie was it? Jerry Maguire, you complete me. It makes a great line in a movie, doesn't it? What you end up with is two leeches sucking off each other. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. And so what you have in Christ is you have my holy life, everything I need for godliness and holiness being met in Christ, and that frees me to love you. So love is demonstrated by sacrifice, ultimately Christ's sacrifice, but also in our own. By this, we also know love because love is directed toward others. Love is directed toward others. Look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, what does that mean? This is a verse that a lot of people have trouble with, even in the church. Even in the church, a lot of people don't like what this verse is saying. And so let's just take it a little bit of a time and let, let's, let's start backwards for a moment. Let's go backwards. What in the world does propitiation mean? That's a, that's a fancy $3 word. I had to go to seminary a long time to say that word correctly. But here's what it means. What is propitiation? It means that Christ on the cross became the satisfaction of God's wrath. That Christ in dying on the cross, he became, when, when God punished his only begotten son on our behalf, his wrath was satisfied by, by, um, by Christ on the cross. Like that hymn we sing, that uh, for God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. It means that when God looks at Christ on the cross, his divine and holy wrath is satisfied. And because of that, he, is, he forgives our sin. He forgives our sins. So in propitiation, you have both the satisfaction of God's wrath and the forgiveness of sin all built in together because God's holiness must be satisfied in order for there to be salvation. And so we have his holy justice being poured out on Christ for sin. And through that, God now forgives his people, right? And so that's propitiation. And what does that mean? Well, let's, let's, again, let's work our way backwards. Why did he do this? Look at this very carefully. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and gave himself to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, understand that God's choosing to set his love on us and God's sending his only begotten son to die for us was not in response to anything that he saw in us or what he saw us do. We do not, we did not love God first. He loved us. That's what this verse says. And it doesn't matter if you back that up to eternity. It doesn't matter if you back that up into the future. It doesn't matter. God loved us. We did not love God. But he loved us. That is the divine. His love is not in reaction 
to what he saw in us, anything. But his love is directed toward us. That's what Romans 5, 8 says. But God shows his own love for us in this, not after we have responded, not after he saw us show faith in eternity past. No, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. How? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He died for us while we were sinners. He paid the price for us. We did not love him. He loved us. And it's amazing to me how many people have a problem with that. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and it wasn't a, it wasn't a Christian, but we were talking about this, and he said, Randy, what in the world do you think is so special about you that would make God love you and send his son to die for you? What in the world do you think makes you so special? And I said, absolutely nothing. Absolutely, that's the point. That's grace. That's the point. It's not that he saw, you know, we hear, we hear preachers on TV today, like, like on Inspiration Channel and stuff, and they'll, they'll say things like, oh, Jesus died for you to show you that you are worthy. No, he did not. He died for you because you are unworthy. If you were worthy, he wouldn't have to die for you. If you, were, if you were able to respond on your own, you would not need Jesus. If you were able to come to Christ on your own, you would not need him. It's the very fact that we did not love God, but he loved us and he did everything we need. He did all the work to bring us to himself. That's what, that is grace. I was having this conversation again uh, not too long ago with a family member and here's what they said. They said, well, you know, Jesus died on the cross so that we can be saved and all those people who are smart enough will take it. And those who aren't smart enough, they're gonna regret it. And I just, I said, listen to what you just said. Smart enough? Where's the grace in that? Where's the grace in that? There's no grace in that. None whatsoever. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And beloved, it doesn't matter if you move that to eternity past. It doesn't matter if you move that to now. It doesn't matter wherever you try to put that, you do not change that truth. We did not love God. He loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation of our sins. This is exactly what Jesus is teaching in Matthew. You have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your father. This is how he loved us. He loved his enemies. We were his enemies. And he brought us into friendship. And not only that, he adopted us as his own children. He took those who were his enemies and brought him into his family and into his glory.
He says, if you, if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the worst of society do the same thing. It's easy to love those who love you. If you only greet, if, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else does? That doesn't make you Christ-like. But God loved us in that he initiated the relationship with us. He did everything. God loved us in that he came and initiated his love for us, not when we were righteous, but when we were rebels, and he made us his own. He made us his own, beloved. He does not knock on the door of your heart. He bursts into your home. He takes you by the hand, and he says, you are mine. I love you, and you are my child. That's the kind of God I want, amen? That's the kind of God I want. And it seems to me, I love how Desiderius Erasmus says this. He's the famous humanist scholar who debated Martin Luther quite a bit. Good guy, just had some wrong views, but I love how he says this. He says, it seems to me that the best proof of an evangelical disposition, that persons are not angry when, when reproached, and have Christian love for those who ill deserve it. You will never be more like Christ than loving those who have no deserving for it whatsoever. That's what John says, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. If this is how God loves us, then this is how we should love others. This is biblical love. Let me go back to Galatians just real quick. I told you Paul is, Paul is contrasting the deeds of the flesh with the fruit of the Spirit. Look what he says. It says in verse 19, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, Things like this. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Beloved, think about how many ways the love of the world is defined by these things sexual immorality, sensuality. Just, just abandon yourself, just, just abandon all hindrances. Think about how the world defines love and how much of it is defined by these works of the flesh. You don't have to go very far to see it. But also look at how much this is self-focused. Self-focused. This is not the love that was demonstrated at Christmas. And it's not the love that Christmas commemorates. This is the love that God expects of us, though. And he gives us the ability to do it through the life we have in Jesus Christ. It's a high calling. It's a high calling. Are you gonna be perfect? No. But can you grow in these things? Yes, you can. How? By growing in your love and in your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you can do it. These three descriptions, that it's rooted in our nature, it's demonstrated by sacrifice, and it's directed toward others. How are you gonna grow in those? 
by growing and knowing Jesus Christ, by knowing him and growing in your relationship with him. Beloved, it's so sad that, that so many churches today settle for mere civility, that when we come to church, we are civil with one another, and that's it. Beloved, I want us to be more. I want us to truly have love for one another. And can I say this? From the day I arrived at Calvary, you guys have excelled in that. We have excelled in that. I don't think I've ever been to a hospital visit where I found out that one of you did not beat me there. That's awesome. I remember I was, uh, after service one day, one of our members came up and said, do you mind if I take one of our visitors out to lunch? I was like, why would I mind? And why do you think you even have to ask me? You don't have to ask me that. Do it. That's wonderful. I, one of the greatest things I find out, and I find this out all the time of ministry and discipleship and things that are being done for one another that I didn't even know about. Some people say, well, the pastor needs to know about it. No, I don't. Just do it. You don't need permission from anybody, especially not me. Just do it. Just do it. If that's what you need, just do it, right? Just do it. You guys have excelled in that. But I'm challenging you, beloved, this morning, excel still more. There's always more we can do. There's always room to grow. Excel still more. And if you don't know Christ this morning, I pray that you will come to know him through the love that you have seen at Calvary Baptist Church. I pray that our love for one another is a witness to you of what Christ can do. I want you to know, we have people in here who comes from all walks of life. We have people with troubled past. We have people who grew up in a, in a nice home. We have some who are kind of sheltered. We have some who are uh, overcoming major sin in their past. We have some that are rich. We have some that are poor. And I will tell you that we all come together and we love one another in Christ. That is not something you will find in the world. But it is something you will find here at Calvary because of what Christ has done for us. Christ builds his church and he does it in love. And we want you to be a part of it, amen? Amen, everyone is welcome, everyone. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. I thank you for the ones that are here, Father. And if there's one who is not here that does not know your love, Father, I pray that they would come to know it before it's too late. Father, if there's one who maybe they need to respond to the grace of Jesus Christ, that they would come today. And Father, maybe there's some of us that we're struggling in this. We're struggling in love. We're, we're struggling to love one another. Maybe uh, we want to, but we just don't think we have the ability to do so. Lord, just, just help us find creative ways. Maybe it's a phone call. Maybe it's a card. Maybe it's some little things. Uh, it, it's amazing how the littlest things can make such a huge difference to someone's day. Or whatever it is, we pray that you would help us to show the love of Christ amongst us. And then by that, all people in Independence County will know that we are your disciples. Let's stand together. I'm gonna to ask if there's someone here this morning, maybe you're here and you need to know Christ as your savior. We invite you to come. I would love to 
speak with you and tell you how you can do so. Maybe you're here and you have received the word at one point, but you need to confess your faith in baptism. Uh, We can come and, and get that arranged. Maybe you want to join the church this morning. Maybe you just want to be prayed for. There's someone in my life that I'm struggling to love like Christ commands me to. Would you pray for me? I will, I will most certainly do so. Whatever it is, we invite you to just sing one verse with us. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Let's sing, where is Christ leading you this morning to go show his love to someone? Let's sing this together. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Mm-hmm.